This is season five of Flute Unscripted. Hi, I'm your host, Katie Massad, and I sit down with a new artist every week and share their stories with you. This podcast is brought to you by Flute Center of New York, the marketplace for flutes. Join us, subscribe, rate, and review us. Use this podcast promo code LISTEN for some special perks. Get $50 off any flute or accessory purchase of $4.99 or more, and 10% off any sheet music order, including free shipping on all orders over $50. Once again, that's code LISTEN. Christine Davis is the principal flutist of the Buffalo Philharmonic. She won the position while she was finishing up her bachelor's degree at the Cleveland Institute of Music, where she studied with Jeffrey Kaner, Joshua Smith, Martha Ahrens, and Mary Kay Fink. Since her appointment in 1995, she's watched the BPO come into a renaissance or rebirth under the leadership of Joanne Folletta. Christine has performed as a soloist with the BPO and has been featured on an extensive and impressive list of recordings. As such, Christine has been rooted in the community in Buffalo for decades and has invested in sharing the knowledge she's gained over the years with her students. She's developed her ideas into a book called The No-Nonsense Guide to Becoming a Professional Flutist and spun these concepts off into seminars and a podcast in an effort to provide practical advice to young flutists. Christine, thanks for coming down today all the way from Buffalo. Um, of course, you play with the BPO. You're the principal flute, and you actually won the job in 1995. That's correct. Um, I feel like you're one of those rare musicians where a lot of us have to, especially these days, relocate, do a lot of shuffling around, go from coast to coast, um, auditioning to then get the job, and, and then maybe you're far from family. Um, I feel like you're really lucky because you got the job. You live up there. You're from there and you have your family. And was that something that you did on purpose? Was that a, a conscious decision to stay rooted uh, yes. where you were from? Yeah. Yes. When I was a little kid, all the way up through high school, I always said that first I was going to play in the Buffalo Philharmonic, and then I was going to play in the New York Philharmonic, and then I was going to be a soloist. And I was lucky enough to play in the Buffalo Philharmonic. And after I got there I knew I was never going to go anywhere else yeah I mean honestly why would I Mm -hmm. my family was there I was from there I still had friends there and once I met my husband who was also a Buffalonian there's really there was was never any question really (laughs) that we were going to go anywhere and even when he started with his job and we temporarily moved away we knew it was only temporary yeah so yeah those plans (laughs) <laughs> got frozen once we got to that first uh, right. stop. Yes. Do you ever have moments where you think about your career and what you would have done if you changed your mind about that? Or do you not think about no. the what ifs? What I do think about is what if I had won a job in another city right off the bat? Yeah. How far would I have attempted yeah. to climb? Mm-hmm. Um, but I haven't really thought about leaving Buffalo. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's the best of both worlds. You have it really is everything you could have, which is, like I said, really hard nowadays to have Absolutely. family and uh, career Absolutely. all at once. Yes, yeah. Um, when you were twenty-one and won the job, 
you weren't even graduated from CIM. That's yet, correct. Right? Did you feel like you were a little green, perhaps, when you started the job? Uh, no. I, I We'd have to get a color that's more extreme <laughs> than that. I had no idea what I was doing. Yeah. I had no idea what I was doing. And, you know, honestly, when that job opened... I, I really think that you do some of your best work when you feel like your back is against a wall because I just I I wanted it so badly that I just felt like failure was not an option. Yeah. And the audition itself took almost six months. Wow. It was so stressful <laughs> because I took the audition. Um, you know, I want to say the audition was in February of 1995. And yeah, I was 20 at the time. And... They chose two winners of the audition. Um, the other girl was also from the Cleveland area. They had each of us come and play a week with the orchestra. And then after we each played the week, the committee felt like, well, those concerts were too different for us to really hmm. compare the two candidates. So then they invited us to come back for a second week each. And mine wasn't until, my second week wasn't until the, the following June. Wow. So A long time. But, yeah. Right. And by the time they told me that I had the job, you know, we went from February to June. It was. Yeah. Do you remember what you played in that second week with the orchestra? I do. Uh, Bernstein Symphonic Dances. Oh, great. I'm sure there was something else in the program. I don't <laughs> remember that. that. The first program that I did was the Brahms German Requiem. Mm. So those were the two programs. I don't know what the other girl played. But yeah. Um, you also, I feel like maybe it's a part of your mission because you won your job when you were so young to help other young musicians. And you wrote a book called The No-Nonsense Guide to Becoming a Professional Flutist. Um, what do you think sets your book apart and the advice in it apart um, that really makes it give young people a practical guide to making it? Well, when I was in college... Um, I really didn't feel like I fit in there. And who knows, that could have been universal to any college that I would have gone to. I'll never know, but I didn't fit in there. And I didn't know what I was doing. All I knew was that I wanted to get a job <laughs> and get on with it. And, you know, by the time I started working, I realized there was so much I had no idea how to do. I remember the first time our piccolo player at the time asked me if I could give a cue. And I thought, uh-oh, <laughs> I'm not even sure I know how to give a cue. <laughs> and I just kind of faked it as well as I could. And like moments like that happened again and again. Yeah, You know, like learning the pitch tendencies of my colleagues' instruments especially the other wind players that, you know, for the most part, they're the opposite of the flute. Mm -hmm. And my learning curve was, it was pretty steep. Yeah. And I would say it took me a good five years until I felt kind of like I had things under control. Kind of. Mm -hmm. You know, honestly... Now, I'm just starting year. I will be starting my 25th year there now. Congratulations. Thank you. So it took me a long time 
to get to the point where I felt like, okay, you know, not that my job is easy, but, you know, I feel like I know, at least I know what I need to do. Mm -hmm. And I know that I have the resources to figure out how to do it. And, you know, I personally feel like I could have benefited from teachers talking to me about the more practical matters that are involved I mean, honestly, probably in any profession, yeah. you know, but especially ours. And, you know, when we work with people whose identities are so intertwined with their sense of self and their sense of self-worth, it's not so simple as no, to turn I, to someone yeah. and say, hey, I think you might be out of tune. Yeah. Holy yeah. mackerel. You know, even the most secure person is going to say, what? Yeah. <laughs> As well, they amazing, should. Because people always As say, don't should. take things like that personally. Right, but, it, but it's, I mean, it's, I, it's so hard not yeah. to. So, yeah. you know, I talk to my students about, hey, what do you do if you think someone else is out of tune? And they always say, uh, I don't know. <laughs> well, and then we, we role play it. Yeah. You know, and I, I teach them, you know, put it on, put it on yourself felt like I wasn't quite with you in this particular spot. Do you think we could play it? Yeah. You know, now I tell them too, our second flutist that we have in Buffalo now is a good friend of mine. And she can turn to me and say, hey, I think you played a wrong note there. <laughs> and I and I won't get out of Ben, I won't get Ben out of shape because right. I know that she's, in the first place, I know she's probably right. And the second place, you know, I know she's just trying to help. Yeah. But there are other people that could turn to me and say, hey, I think you played a wrong note, and it would make me feel terrible. Yeah. So, you know, we talk about those things. We talk about the practical aspects of taking auditions. There are a lot of people in our field, a lot of musicians, I should say, that have anxiety. Mm-hmm. I'm one of them. You know, and that factors into how you, how you, you know, go through the audition process. Sure. So... We talk about that. How, how do you handle your anxiety? How do you balance things? Yeah. That's a hard thing. When you're used to practicing four, five, six hours a day, and then all of a sudden you're working and you can't, holy mackerel, that's hard. Mm-hmm. Like, how do you balance all those things? So over the years, I've really tried to include that in what I work with students on because I don't want them to get out into a job and have someone say, have have someone else think, that person's a terrible colleague or they don't know how to right. interact with me and I just can't hire them again. I, yeah. I don't want that for them. And a lot of times I feel like if you don't teach someone that, you know, it's, it's not always instinctual. Do you find there's any consistencies to things that maybe some students are lacking when they are graduating with an undergrad degree? Do you think that there's something that's missing from the bachelor's education well taxes (laughs) how to do your well actually as a freelance musician yeah and you know what actually i several years ago i applied for a teaching job at a suny school um that i did not get because i don't have a master's degree i'm sure there were other reasons too but that was the yeah yeah they tossed my application out but as I was going through that application process, I had the idea of who, whom the people that I would think would be helpful to bring in to talk to students would be. And 
they were a lot different than I think the people that other colleges would choose. Mm-hmm. And when I didn't get the job, I said, you know what, I'm doing this anyway. And I hired a friend of one of my students, and we actually filmed four webinars about all these things. And actually, all four people talked about taxes. Oh, funny. How they pay them. <laughs> yeah. But we ended up, they have been changed to podcasts because, unfortunately, our producer suffered a catastrophic hard drive crash. Um, it was really devastating. It was not his fault. It was totally devastating. But so we changed them. We were able to salvage the audio. So they're they're on my website now. Oh, great. But that's one of the things that we talked about. How do you pay taxes? All four of them that I interviewed, I interviewed a freelance composer and pianist, um, a friend of mine that teaches piano for a living, private piano teacher, and two uh, current and former f- freelance flutists. And... Yeah, they talk about performance etiquette when you're when you're a freelancer, and how to play second flute and auxiliary. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's unfortunately, I think that's hugely lacking in college. Yeah, and you know, honestly, I feel like that problem starts way before college. Yeah, that starts in youth orchestras mm-hmm. where you learn first is best, and if you can't get a first job. It's because you weren't good enough. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're playing second, it's because you weren't good enough to play first. Yeah. And I think that sentiment is very damaging to people's egos and people's sense of self. And I think there are a lot of people out there playing second that feel undervalued and underappreciated. Um, and it just, it, it makes a stressful environment for everyone. So we talk about that on the podcasts and that's also something that I work with in my studio is how to play second it's not the same no it's not it's a totally different job and in a lot of ways it's more difficult I feel like than playing first Mm -hmm. because there's a lot of mind reading (laughs) that can be involved sure so yeah I I do think that there are things missing I do think there are things missing and I think you know when you get to our stage of a you know a career Sometimes it can be really scary to say, you know, this is something that I really think is hard, so I'm going to figure it out, and then I'm going to try to help you figure it out, too. Yeah. That's hard for a lot of people yeah, to do. of course. And you were speaking about not continuing on to get a master's. Do you have an opinion about advanced degrees nowadays, master's and doctorates, and the practicality of those versus the overwhelming student loans um, you know, and balancing... The benefits. I really don't. And the reason being, it, it actually never occurred to me to get a master's degree because I had a job. Right. Um, I actually didn't want to finish my bachelor's degree, but my parents said to me, <laughs> no, 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 you have to finish it. And yeah. I'm, I'm glad I did. But it, it actually never occurred to me to go forward from there. Sure. Um, and then when this job came up and I applied for it, you know, I don't know. I, I felt like it was a little like, seriously, you know, I have 25 years of experience. I have a really strong studio. I have a strong teaching background, you know, and they eliminated my resume before it even, you know, got off the table. So I guess from that standpoint, if you think you might want to teach, I think you need to have one. But to be honest with you, you know, I mean... I can't imagine taking on that kind of debt. Yeah. You know, we're not in a field where most people 
make a ton of money. Right. You know, so if you're getting out of a master's degree and you have debt from that and you have debt from your undergrad, that's scary. Yes. <laughs> yeah. That's scary. So, you know, I don't know. I mean, except for that one experience, I don't feel that my um, professional life has suffered from only having a bachelor's degree, but it certainly counted against me in that particular right. setting. Sure. What Christine might have missed out on by not going on to pursue advanced degrees, she certainly made up for in the real-life experiences of having a full-time professional job. Her own trials and tribulations were a source of inspiration for Christine's book, as were her interviews with other artists. Christine shared more with me about her opinion on networking, orchestra etiquette, and dealing with conflicts. Christine has unfortunately had her fair share of conflicts with other BPO colleagues in the past, and while we couldn't discuss the specific details of incidents that have happened over the last few years due to legal reasons, she did have a lot to share about her struggles in general and how she overcame them. You've also branched out with the the webinars, um, talking more about gigging in different communities and mm-hmm. uh, forming a freelance career in a metropolitan area or in mm-hmm. a suburban area. Mm-hmm. Um, I really love that you got advice from people that are here in the city and you have advice from people that are also up by you in Buffalo, which is a large city, but, you know, not it as, as not large as same Manhattan. thing. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, what is some... some challenges that go with being in a large city, some pros and cons for working? Well, I actually learned a lot about that from Karen Bogardis, mm-hmm. who is a, I don't know if you know her. Yeah, yeah, she's New a York friend of the stores. Yeah, yeah, she's terrific. And that was actually one of the most fun things about that is because I had not met Karen before interviewing her. And when I talked to Linda Green, our second flute player, who freelanced in Syracuse for 20 years before she started working full-time in an orchestra, um, Linda had said to me, you know, what I did in upstate New York is not really the same thing as freelancing in a mega city. I think you need to talk to somebody in a mega city. And I ended up meeting Karen through another friend of Linda's. And, you know, the stories that she told me, I thought were fascinating. And from what she told me, and, you know, I, I, I've never tried to work in New York City, mm-hmm. but... Um, she talked a lot about um, building good relationships with contractors and how she did that and how she networks. All four of them I asked about networking and they all had they all had a lot of similar things to say. There were definitely some different things too. Yeah. And Karen, actually one of the things that stuck in my mind is that Karen said to me, my husband always says to me, Karen, if you went to more parties, you'd work more <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because you'd meet more people. Yeah, and actually, yeah. she was telling me about a great gig that she got through chatting with somebody of course. at a party and the type of work that she does to sustain good relationships with colleagues mm-hmm. and with contractors. And, you know, she told me if someone helps me get a job, Somewhere, someone recommends me for a job, I do my best to pay them back whenever I can. So, you know, if somebody suggests a job or, you know, offers me a job that I can't do, and I think about that person who got me a job, I'll recommend them. And then, you know, and she talked to us about how 
that's really been helpful to her over the years. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the biggest situations that Linda was in being in Syracuse is at first she didn't even have a car. Wow. So, you know, she talked a lot about trying to balance how far is it worth it for me to go? Is the money that it's going to cost me to get there going to be worth what I'm paid? Mm-hmm. And how do I juggle those things? Yeah. Um, it was pretty fascinating, honestly. Yeah, it sounds like it. And it was pretty it's fascinating. interesting what Karen was saying, too, because you do have to be... I feel like you have to go out of your comfort zone. A lot of times people don't want to do that socializing and networking portion, right. but it is really important. And as someone that also doesn't like to do that, I know right. it's like, uh, I dread doing it. But when right. you just go out and you do it, it, it does help. I I think it must. Yeah. I think it must. You've also worked really closely with um, a lot of educators. And I think your series has some pieces in it that are tailored to like public school system teachers as well. Um, what do you think is working and what maybe isn't working in the public school system for music education? Um, I can, I think I can only answer that question from an outsider's point of view, um, because obviously I've never been a public school teacher. Um, honestly, I have no idea how public school teachers, how public music school teachers do what they do, because I've talked to enough of them to know that they learn their main instrument and then they kind of just cram everything else. Yeah. And how, I mean, I had I had trouble teaching the flute when I was in my early 20s, mm-hmm. you know, and I had been playing it for, you know, more than 10 years at yeah, that point. Yeah, you think you know it so you know, well. You think, yeah, yeah, you know, so how you get to the point where you can teach someone an instrument that you really don't know yourself, I have no idea how they do it. Um, and there was one, there was a time several years back that I went and uh, taught some kids at a, um, I think I was at their middle school, um, in suburban area outside of Buffalo, and I was teaching these kids, and there were three band directors there. Two of them were friends of mine. And they were listening more closely than the kids. And I, and <laughs> afterwards, you know, I mean, and they asked me tons of questions. Yeah. And it kind of turned into, you know, that I was working with them as much as I was working with the kids. And, you know, and they would say, well, if a kid sounds like this, what does that mean? Or, you know, what what do I do about this? And, you know, when they're you know, slouched and they're, you know, like, how do I yeah. fix that? You know, and afterwards I thought about it and I, I realized, like, how could you know those things? Right. Really, like, if you don't study this, like, really, really thoroughly, how do you know that? I wouldn't yeah. be able to. There are also just strange habits that are not things that are written in books. Right. There's just things that exactly. players do. Yeah. Now, specifically to flute, um, one of the biggest things that I notice, even with high school kids, is that there are so many of them that come study with me and they've never used the B-flat thumb before. Yeah. That's actually a pet peeve of mine <laughs> because they don't want to learn it. When they've been right, playing the regular B-flat for yeah. so many years, they don't want to do it. Um, and in those cases, I go through and write it out for them in their music. Yeah. You know, use it here, use it here, switch to regular thumb here, you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, so I don't have... 
a podcast on that yet, although that is definitely something that I would Good. like to do is interview colleagues of mine that play different instruments so that when you're a school teacher and, for instance, flute or oboe or clarinet is not yeah, your main when instrument. You're troubleshooting. Right, that yeah. you can listen to one of these and hear somebody that plays it all the time. Yeah, it'd be a great resource. Give you the 411. So that's for later, but there is a chapter in my book um, at the end for band directors that I wrote after that class that I gave hmm. at Clarence Middle School. Yeah. And that was why I wrote it. Yeah. So in there, there I talk about the B-flat thumb and the lever and, um, you know, the, the balance between control and flexibility mm-hmm. as far as, like, you know, the embouchure hole and how much to cover and, you know, where to where to put their fingers when they're beginners <laughs> yeah. and all that kind of stuff. Um, you've had a lot of really influential teachers yourself mm-hmm. and um, someone that you're really interested in and that you've studied with and um, kind of follows principles is Keith Underwood. Uh, yes. Yeah. How did you get to know Keith and what do you love about his teaching and playing style? Um, okay, that's a lot of questions. <laughs> I know. <laughs> How did I meet Keith? Um, the summer before my freshman year in college... I went to one of those Julius Baker master classes. Okay. And my roommate at that class was Elizabeth Ostling, who plays now in the Boston Symphony. She's been there for, I think she's been in Boston a year longer than I've been in Buffalo, (laughs) I think. Um, And boy, did I like her. And I think I can say this now, 20 xx years later um that you know all those all those girls at curtis were studying with keith in secret <laughs> and <laughs> like they the, can't get kicked out of the yeah. school now but <laughs> the um, flute guru they on were the side. all yeah. going to him and after i started college and just realized like i'm totally in over my head you know i called him because of all of the really wonderful positive things that she had told me about him and the summer after my sophomore year in college we had some family friends that lived in uh, Putnam Valley and I went there for a month I spent a month with them and Keith was only in town that first week of that month because he he used to I don't know if he still is but he used to travel all summer and I took three lessons from him in one week that totally changed my life and, you know, I mean, I still call him, you know, I mean, when I come home from work sometimes and, I'm, oh, we can't do this, <laughs> you know, I shoot him a text, can you FaceTime me? <laughs> and we still do. Yeah. And we have um, studio classes with him. Um, he actually thinks this is totally fun. And so do I. Like, there are times when I'll get three of my kids together to play for him. They split the hour, and then everyone comes and watches, and we get on my computer and call him, and he works with everybody. And I think the things that I like and admire about him the most are that when I ask him a question, he has an answer for me that makes sense to me, and he, he he knows how to explain it in a way that I think makes sense. Mm-hmm. And if I say to him, wait a minute, I don't get it, he explains it again yeah. until I understand it. And I feel like I understand the principles of sound production on the flute because of him. Mm-hmm. And because I understand those, it's made my own 
troubleshooting with my own playing work a whole lot better because I, I, I do this, I try to do this myself and I have my students do this, like come back to the things that you know. When you have a problem, come back to the things that you know. And all of those things that I know and understand really are from working with him. I find him incredibly inspirational. And he has never, never said anything mean, I think, to anybody that I know. You know, he's he's so positive all the time. Mm -hmm. And also, now that you were saying that he has an answer for everything, I was thinking about it. I don't think I've ever heard him say, I don't know, to anything you've ever asked him right like he's never no unsure. and he and he's not he's not like bsing he really does yeah, know yeah. like he <laughs> he really does, he does know yeah. and you know not only that i find him to be just an incredibly generous person yeah in 1999 uh, joanne Folletta became the music director of the buffalo phil mm-hmm. uh, she's the first female conductor to lead a major american ensemble at the time mm-hmm. um, she's been leading the group ever since uh, i also find her to be another big inspirational person. How did they respond to her appointment? Yeah, yeah, I mean, actually, I think that's one of the things that Joanne does the best is that she is an amazing ambassador to our community. And she has, ende- um, <coughs> excuse me, she has endeared herself um, in the Buffalo community in a way that I've never seen a music director be able to do. Um, as far as I know, she is the first music director I think that we've ever had that actually owns a home in Buffalo. And obviously oh. she's, there's a lot of times that she's not there, right. but, but you know, she has a home there and the people that she's been able to surround our organization with have been incredibly stabilizing for us and very supportive of the goals that she has for us you know, I mean, I I had, I don't think I had ever, no, we didn't do any CDs. We didn't record anything in the first several years I was there. But in the almost 20 years that she's been here, I, you know, I mean, I think we've done almost 50 yeah, CD recordings. Yes. <laughs> it's been a lot. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's because she has those goals and the community is really responsive and you know, very supportive Mm -hmm. of those. How do you think she's shaped the group since she started? Well, that's one of the big ways, you know, that she's, she's just been a, you know, a real stabilizing force Mm -hmm. for the group. And, you know, we don't, I mean, when I first got hired with the BPO, I played a couple of concerts before we got laid off. Um, And I don't think that any of us really has those worries anymore. I mean, there were, there were several seasons where, you know, the personnel manager would call us the night before our opening rehearsal in the fall, don't come in. Hmm. We don't have a contract. Yeah. We don't have things settled. We don't stressful. have the money. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. Because you finally win a job that's kind of your dream right. and then it's Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, we don't really I don't have those worries anymore. Yeah. I don't I, I mean don't, major orchestras still in the major United orchestras States do. do still. But she she has really been able to um, see a vision for fixing that through. Mm-hmm. What about artistically? Um, I think I think artistically, one of her strongest things is her programming. Um, we play a lot of play a lot of really interesting programs that she's able to, you know, mix 
classics, you know, with something more unknown. Mm -hmm. And actually, that's a lot of the stuff that we've recorded because, you know, let's face it, if you're, you know, if you're going to buy a, you know, a recording of a Beethoven symphony and you can buy Chicago symphony or you can buy Buffalo, you're going to, I mean, you're going to buy Chicago. So, you know, a lot of the things that we've recorded are things that are lesser known and it's beneficial for us. Um, because we're the ones that get those pieces yeah. out there. And I think it's also, you know, beneficial for people who are interested in, exactly. you know, learning yeah, about these more obscure pieces. Yeah. yeah. She's also, um, she was also very supportive of you when there were a lot of disputes amongst colleagues in your group. There's some drama, which we won't name specifically today, but um, I'm just wondering on a general note how you deal with difficult working situations or colleagues that you don't get along with Um, because I think a lot of the guests I've had on in general have had very positive experiences and there's really no issues which is very lucky Um, a lot of times a lot of us experience working with someone that we either don't agree with musically or personally Um, how do you make it work Um, it's not easy yeah um there are definitely situations that I've gone through in my job that I really feel I can say without exaggeration have probably taken years off of my life. Um, I guess my advice for people who also might be in a similar situation would be um, know your company's anti-discrimination and anti-harassment policies. I believe that employers are all uh, legally obligated to have a statement like that. I think they are. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, a statement like that defines what is harassment, what is bullying, what is discrimination. Um, And then it should outline the steps that you would go through to report one of those things. Right. And... I think it's important to keep a file of things that happen. And even if you don't have a conversation with a person, you know, if you feel that something has happened that that qualifies as harassment or bullying or discrimination, that you go home and you write it down on such and such a day, such and such a time, Mm -hmm. this is what happened. And if there was anyone around that witnessed the event, you make a note of that. If you have interactions with this person over email or phone messages or text messages or voice messages, you need to save them and archive them and just keep them handy. (laughs) And, you know, if you are reporting... um, instances of harassment, bullying, etc. Um, and y- you don't feel that your employer is reacting and assisting you in the way that is outlined in the company's agreement, then then you have to you have to talk to a lawyer. Yeah. Um, for people who are freelancers, I think this is a lot more difficult because you don't have a contract, you know, and if you're being harassed by someone in a group that you don't have a full-time job with, 
that's really hard. <laughs> and I think the best advice that I could give to people who are in that situation would be assuming that the person that is uh, hurting you is not your section principal. Yeah. I would say talk to the section principal and and ask that person to advocate on your behalf. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not an easy situation yeah. to deal with. How not do you stay focused during performances and rehearsals? Oh, my God. <sighs> there have been times that have really been a struggle. Um, I do find that five milligrams of Enderol really helps me with concentration. Even if I'm not feeling like heart racing, freaking out, that definitely helps. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a colleague that told me, you know, you can only play your own part. And that is obviously true. I mean, really, the only thing we can do is play our own part. Right. Now, if you're sitting near someone who is playing in such a way that makes your part sound bad, that's really, really stressful. Yeah. But, you know, at the end of the day, there's... You can't control anyone else no. besides yourself. So, you know, to try to remind myself of that, you know, sometimes it's been a, you know, every five-minute reminder that right. <laughs> I feel like I need to give myself. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, I get that. Sounds like you've been through a lot, so thanks for sharing those tips. Well, thanks for coming, Christine. It was really great to finally meet you in person and, and talk with you. Likewise. Thank you so much. Yep. Christine balances a full career of teaching lessons, giving solo performances, and rehearsing with the BPO with family time. This time she sets aside to spend with her husband and children is sacred to her, and she doesn't hesitate to turn down other engagements to preserve it. I could tell that this meant Christine was really present and engaged when she does commit to a performance or a lesson, and she wants to make her knowledge accessible to all. You can learn more about Christine's theories and her approach to playing in the No-Nonsense Guide to Becoming a Professional Flutist, now available at Flute Center of New York. Thank you to Christine Davis for the interview. This episode features her recordings with the BPO on Ravel's Daphnis and Chloe, Brahms Symphony No. 4, and Christine's feature as soloist on Jared Tate's concerto, Tracing Mississippi. This has been an episode of Flute Unscripted. This podcast is sponsored by the Flute Center of New York. Visit our website at flutesforsale.com for the largest selection of new and pre-owned instruments. Remember to use this podcast promo code LISTEN for discounts on flutes and sheet music. Special thanks to our owner, Phil Unger, the Flute Center team, and Stefan Haskoldson for our theme music. (laughs) 